Okay, first up, we have our grader, Jameson Galloway. He looks oh, yeah. friendly, but he's a mean guy, so we'll have to work hard. All right, so we'll see it. This is incorrect, though. Hmm? This is 436. So if you do want to come to my office hours, it's 436. We'll change that. All right. Enjoy. Okay, I'm going to pass around a sheet, mark off the times you can't come to office hours, and then we'll figure out some time for our office hours. Let's see what we've got here. Um, so you can access this web page through SmartSight. Does anyone use SmartSight? Three, four, five, ten. Um, as far as I can tell, SmartSight doesn't work yet. So in addition to SmartSight, we will be using a website at Harvard in addition to this website. And they'll all be uh, linked. The advantage will be that uh, if one of the web servers goes down, the assignments will be available in the other place. So you can either find it the assignments here or on SmartSight. There will be two copies. So to get, you'll have to register on the Harvard website. So if you scroll down uh, here, it says assignments will be available online. You have to register the first time. So fill in your name and the student ID, make up the password. And you'll see when you're on the Harvard website, you'll see what uh, is due. So we're going to have reading assignments for each class. So when you click on this, we'll give you your next reading assignment. That's on September 30th. It'll tell you what section you have to read, and then there'll be a couple questions. Um, one question is going to be easy, like, did you find anything confusing? And one question will be something easy, like, if you were awake while you were reading it, can you answer this simple question? So those reading assignments, if you look at this, usually there'll be two questions. That'll be typical. Um, the grading, so 10% on reading assignments, 30% on problem sets, 15% for each midterm, and 30% for the final exam. Um, I think our midterm is going to be October 29th, unless something bad happens to us. I'm going to be recording the lectures, so if you miss a lecture, you can listen to it on the podcast. You'll still have to borrow someone's notes because it probably won't make that much sense just listening to me without seeing what was going on. And, oh, we're going to try something new this year. Fun and exciting. Has anyone listened to Car Talk? Two people have listened to three. Okay, on Car Talk they have a feature called Stump the Chumps. So we're going to play Stump the Chump. I'm the chump. You guys try to stump me. So, uh, at this, you should send all your email about the course to this thing. The physics department email doesn't work either. But Gmail, you all got, guys that all have Gmail now, right? So Gmail does work. Um, so if you send it to that, then I'll know it's for the course. So uh, by next Wednesday, send me two questions. Questions are supposed to be about some quantum mechanical system or something quantum mechanical, something that you want to have answered during the course. Uh, you can send up to two questions. For each question, you'll get one bonus mark on the final exam for a total of two if you send two questions. Then next week, you guys will vote, and we'll, you guys will pick the top five questions. The people who submitted the top five questions will get uh, 10 bonus marks. But they, if you can't, you can't get 20. It's only out of 100. So a maximum of 10 bonus mark marks on the final <coughs> exam if you get one of the five winning questions. So make the questions good. So people who have done this before told me that uh, the winning questions are typically the short, pithy, interesting questions, not long-winded. It takes three minutes to read the questions. People aren't going to vote for it. So. Is that uh, clear? So by next Wednesday before class, send me your two questions. Then I'll have to figure out how to make SmartSight to make a poll for it. So you can
vote. Is there any questions about organization of the course? So there's going to be problem sets every week. So the first problem set should be posted. So they'll be due on Fridays. And you probably have uh, other classes with assignments due on Fridays. So don't wait till Thursday night to do them. Uh, the other thing we're going to do is um, every physics course should have a lab. It's kind of hard to set up a quantum lab because you need some sophisticated equipment. So we'll just have a virtual lab. So if you uh, go over to the side here and click on spins, you can download, uh, this is a Java simulator, simulates a Stern-Gerlach experiment. And you're going to be using that for some of the assignments. And I'm going to tell you later in the lecture today what a Stern-Gerlach experiment is. So you can either use that online or download it to your computer for those homework assignments. Any other questions? Any questions? Too intimidating so far? So I thought we'd start with a review of what you got. Yeah? Is that a question? No? It's like work a minute ago. I thought we'd start with a review of what you learned last spring quarter, because you probably didn't spend the summer studying quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. So you've forgotten it all. When I was an undergraduate, this was the course I was waiting for, quantum mechanics. This is the cool stuff, right? I saw two nods. So what you were supposed to get out of uh, first quarter. Um, the textbook doesn't come out and say that these are the deep principles. Some people call them the postulates of quantum mechanics because then it sounds even more pompous. Um, but and there's either three or six, depending on how you split them up. The first three are here. So the state of a quantum mechanical system is represented by a wave function. You guys did one-dimensional problems, so that was a function of x and t. Or you can represent it as a ket in the bra ket notation. Stop me if it, something doesn't sound familiar. Uh, two, observables are represented by Hermitian operators. So. For example, A is our Hermitian operator because we said it's our Hermitian operator. The Hermitian operators can act on the cats. And over here I've got the page number, so if it doesn't sound familiar, you can go back and review it. Uh, the only possible result of a measurement is an eigenvalue of the operator. So you guys have all taken linear algebra, and at the time it may have seemed like a pointless waste of time. But actually, it's the key to understanding quantum mechanics. All of quantum mechanics is analogous to what you learned in linear algebra, because observables are Hermitian operators. They act on kets. So it's just like matrices acting on vectors. Matrices acting on vectors have eigenvalues. In quantum mechanics, the things we get out of measurements are eigenvalues of those Hermitian operators. So if you understood that linear algebra, <coughs> you can understand everything about quantum mechanics practically. If you didn't understand linear algebra or fell asleep, now's a good time to go back and figure it out. So we make a measurement. The measurement gives us uh, an eigenvalue if it's in an eigenstate. If it's not in an eigenstate, we'll still get an eigenvalue. And the probability of getting a particular eigenvalue will depend on the overlap between the state <coughs> that we're trying to measure and the eigenstate of the corresponding to the particular eigenvalue, and then that overlap has to be squared to make it a probability. Remember, wave functions and cats just tell us about probability amplitudes, so they can be complex numbers. Probabilities have to be real numbers, so to get probabilities, we have to take a modulus squared of something. So after a measurement <coughs> that gives us a particular eigenvalue, the nth eigenvalue, the new state is going to be a normalized projection of the original state. So we started with some state psi. We did a measurement and we got a particular eigenvalue a sub n. There's a, a projection operator. Everyone remember what a projection operator is? It 
takes all the expands this thing think of expanding this thing out in its eigenbasis so any vector can be expanded in the in the basis of eigenvectors and it just sets to zero the coefficients of everything that wasn't the eigenvector corresponding to this eigenvalue and then it's normalized so this is that same thing up top and p squared is the same as p if it's a projector because once you've set everything else to zero setting it to zero again doesn't do anything so this just makes sure that this is normalized and the reason we do this fancy thing is because this preserves the relative phase information between this original guy and this thing after the measurement so usually we don't care about overall phases but if we split a beam did separate measurements on it and then recombine the beam it could be a relative phase between the two beams and when we redefine them that phase information could be important so doing it this fancy way preserves that phase information for us so after a measurement we end up with an, a vector that's an eigenvector uh, probability of getting that is determined by the overlap with the eigenvector of the corresponding eigenvalue this projector projects out that piece and preserves this phase information. And finally, the first thing that you learned, it's the most complicated thing, the time evolution of a state is given by the Schrodinger equation. So IH bar d by dt, the wave function has to be equal to the Hamiltonian, which is our emission operator, acting on the wave function. So those are the key principles that you were supposed to magically absorb as nowhere I didn't I don't see anywhere in the textbook where he says these are the important points. But these are the important points. This is what you were supposed to know up to this point. So since you've forgotten everything from last quarter, uh, let's try to apply this these principles to a simple system. So you guys did do two-state systems last quarter, right? So uh, the one of the most interesting two-state systems is spin half. And uh, the first time people uh, played around with the spin half system was, was due to Stern and Gerlach. And what they were doing was they took, uh, they had some silver in an oven, they heated it up, and if you make it hot enough, some silver atoms will come off. Uh, you send it, they come out through a slit, so you get a collimated beam of silver atoms. So it's all done in the vacuum. And then uh, they pass it through a magnetic field. And if you look at the, the beam, is, if the beam is going into the screen here, the top magnet is not, not uh, symmetrical with the bottom magnet. So there's a non-uniform magnetic field here. Okay? So if there's a little magnetic dipole going through this field, it will experience a force because there's a gradient in the magnetic field. So what they saw was the silver atom, beam of silver atoms got split into two beams after going through this. So classically, that shouldn't happen, right? There's some kind of force and there's some distribution of things. You wouldn't expect it. You'd expect a continuous distribution depending on the values. But because it's quantum mechanics, this is telling you that this measurement has only got two possible um, eigenstates, or two eigenvalues. So at the time, they thought they were um, trying to verify Bohr's theory of the atom, which hopefully at some point you learned is wrong, but was a it was half right. So uh, by some strange coincidence, Bohr's theory predicted the right result for this experiment for all the wrong reasons. Because Bohr didn't know, nobody knew at the time that electrons have spin. Uh, but when they saw this, since it agreed with Bohr's theory, they thought they'd confirmed Bohr's theory, so they were very excited. Later on, people realized what it really meant was that electrons have spin. But first, Schrodinger and Heisenberg had to figure out what quantum mechanics really was so that we could know that without spin, 
you didn't get this behavior. And then once you realized the electrons did have spin, that explained the experiment. So why, why is it important that it's uh, silver? We're going to, it's a long, complicated story. But the, the important point is that the silver atom is neutral and the electron is charged. So if we just did this with, ele with electrons, there's going to be an electric field that's going to have an effect on the electron. So we can't do it just with electrons. So because the silver atom is neutral, it only experiences the magnetic field. And once we solve the intricacies of the internal workings of a silver atom, what you find is that uh, it acts like it's a spin-half particle. So all the electrons and protons inside it all have their own spin. But they add up effectively. Only one spin matters in the end. So it acts like a single spin-half. So we're going to get into all the details of how spin works later on. So for, what, for now, we just have to know that um, the spin of this particle only has two possible eigenvalues. So I keep saying spin like it's an angular momentum. And that's the classical analogy of what's going on. So let's think about a magnetic dipole moment. So if you had a magnetic dipole moment in a non-uniform magnetic field, it would experience a force if there's a gradient of the field. And that force would be proportional to the magnetic dipole times the gradient of the magnetic field. So we're assuming that the magnetic field is only varying along the z direction here. So if you imagine that an electron is a little charged body, which it's not, and it was spinning around like angular momentum, then it would, have a, it would act like a current loop. And that a current loop has a magnetic dipole. So the magnetic dipole moment of a current loop is the current times the area over the speed of light. And if you had a charge going around in a circle of radius r, you could work out um, rotating with velocity d. You would get this formula for the magnetic dipole moment. And uh, r times v times m would be the angular momentum. So if we divide by m, we get something proportional to the charge and proportional to the angular momentum. So that's what it would look like classically. A rotating charged body would have a dipole moment proportional to its angular momentum. So let's suppose uh, the electron has some intrinsic angular momentum. And we'll call it s because it's, it's the spin of the electron. So, and there'll be some proportionality factor, fudge factor out front we'll call gamma, which today we're not going to worry about what gamma is or how to calculate it. We're going to learn that later. So if the electron has some internal angular momentum, it should have a magnetic dipole moment with some fudge factor. And so there'll be a force on it. And uh, if we send a spin-half particle with a, this dipole moment through a magnetic field, this force is going to push uh, some of the particles up and some of the particles down. And what we see in the experiment is that there's only two possible values, so which tells us that there's only two possible values for the spin. So it's quantized, and it's a two-state system. So um, experimentally, when we measure the spin, we get plus or minus h bar over 2. So you guys confused or? Any questions? <coughs> Pardon me? Are we just very unresponsive? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's morning and it's quantum. <laughs> but quantum is the most exciting physics course. What do you do in E and M? <laughs> we also covered this in E and M. Covered spin? Covered this particular electron. Okay, good. So here's a picture of our friends Stern and Gerlach. So Stern is on the left. And uh, this was the result of their experiment. They took a picture and made it 
pasted it onto a piece of cardboard and mailed it to Bohr as a postcard. So here is what you see uh, coming out when, the when there's no magnets. Here's what you see coming out when there is a magnet. And this is supposed to be one millimeter. When they first did the experiment, they didn't actually see anything um, because there weren't that many silver atoms being deposited. But um, I think it was Stern liked to smoke cigars, cheap cigars. And so he was looking at this thing, trying to figure out why he couldn't see the silver atoms, and he breathed on it, and suddenly he saw these bands. It was because his cheap cigars had sulfur in them, and the sulfur reacted with the silver and made something he could visible. You could see the cigar in the center. So here's an idealized Stern-Gerlach experiment, which is what the, the spin software will let us <coughs> simulate. So let's uh, look at that. Oops. So here's our oven. Here's a magnetic field. Uh, it's pointing in the z direction. That's why it says z. And we know that since we prepared a, a beam of spin half particles, which our silver atoms are, uh, there are two possible eigenvalues. So the beam will split into two beams, one with spin up and one with spin down. And these things over here are counters. So we're going to run the experiment. Click on Go. So what happens is it just uh, half the time it comes out spin up, half the time it comes spin down. So you probably didn't need a Java applet to see that. <laughs> so what you can do with this software is uh, you can add some extra magnetic fields. So now I'll take the beam and send it through this magnetic field. And I'll rotate the magnetic field so it's in a different direction. Where exactly is the XYZ plane? Um, it's not defined. I mean, it's, it's in your head. You choose some Z somewhere. It's all abstract. <laughs> so Z is whatever you call Z, and X is whatever you call X. And this is, this is just a schematic representation. It's not a 3D representation of the beams. So by clicking on things and dragging them, I can connect. I can connect. Uh, think beams to counters. I can add an extra counter. I can connect things up. So you can arrange any possible set of Stern-Gerlach experiments sequentially, one after the other, and run them and see what happens. So that's what you'll be doing on some of the problem sets. Getting back to, now we can apply the, those principles of quantum mechanics to our Stern-Gerlach apparatus. So as I said, we have an oven magnetic field pointing in the z direction. And because our silver atoms have this quantized spin, the force on them is effectively quantized. So the ones that are spin up get forced up, and the ones that are spin down get forced down. And if we just heated them in an oven, it's just going to be random 50-50 when we make this measurement. It's not a, if we prepared, if we measured this one again, we send it through another magnetic field, it would always come out, spin up, now that we've, by making this measurement, we've put it into an eigen state. So our first principle was that we could represent a quantum mechanical system by a wave function or a ket. And every good physicist likes to make up his own notation to confuse future generations of students. So in various textbooks, this spin-up state could be called a plus ket, or h bar over 2, and the other one would be minus h bar over 2, or it could be more elaborate. The z component of the spin equals h bar over 2, and the other one would be equals minus h bar over 2. Or you could say it's plus in the z direction, since you could have measured it in any direction you wanted. Or you could just put an arrow pointing up, meaning spin up. So 
if you read a ra random quantum mechanics book, it could be any one of those. But you guys are used to that now, right? Mature students. So we represent, uh, today we'll use plus and minus. Those are our cats. And because it's a two-state system, that's all we have to know, plus or minus. So observables are represented by a Hermitian operator that acts on cats. So in particular, here we're measuring the spin in the z direction, because our magne magnetic field has a gradient along the z direction. So um, we represent this apparatus, this measurement apparatus, by an operator, f sub z, the component of the spin in the z direction. Because spin is some kind of vector, right? It's like an angular momentum. So it has components in any direction. And the component in any particular direction should be represented by a Hermitian operator. So three, the only possible result of a measurement is an eigenvalue of the operator. So when we go through the first measurement, we either get plus or minus. We don't get a continuum of things. We don't get three possible things. We only get two. And then if we send this plus beam through a second measurement, I think we can do that. I remember what key to press. Uh, Let's uh, see. We need to reset the counters. Press go. So now, after after we've measured the spin in the z direction once, and try to measure it again. We've already projected the wave function down to the plus component, so it only has a plus component. So if we measure it again, 100% of the time, we're going to get plus. We're never going to get minus because we prepared this guy already in an eigenstate of that operator. Yeah? Could you call that a projection on Z? Or a projection it's not a projection in, in real space. It's a projection in the space of <coughs> cats. Oh, on the wave function. Yeah, on the wave function. Projection on the wave functions. So our wave functions, because there's only two possible eigenvalues, it's a two-dimensional space, plus or minus. And we project it onto the plus or the spin up. And so as long as we keep measuring the z component, we'll always get spin up. So since SZ is our emission operator and it only has two eigenvalues, we can only get two possible answers from our experiment, plus h bar over 2 or minus h bar over 2. And on the plus, we get plus, and on the minus, we get minus. That's why we call them plus and minus. So maybe now is a good time to review linear algebra. So uh, if you have a Hermitian operator that has eigenvectors and eigenvalues, uh, in particular, if there's just two eigenvectors and two eigenvalues, then you can write any possible <coughs> vector in that space uh, in terms of that eigenbasis. So remember that eigenvectors are orthogonal, like that. So that means they form a basis. So you started with some random basis, whatever it was, but you can always choose a new basis, which are the eigenvectors, which makes life simple. And the eigenvectors should be normalized. so. The overlap of the plus with the plus is 1, minus with minus is 1, but they're orthogonal. So the overlap of minus with plus and plus with minus are both 0. So that means they make an orthonormal basis in that two-dimensional space. So any arbitrary ket we can write as a linear combination of our two eigenvectors or eigenstates. So a and b are some coefficients. And they can be complex numbers, because we're doing quantum mechanics. And if we take the Hermitian conjugate of this state, we would write it in terms of bras. So the Hermitian conjugate of this plus ket is plus bra. 
transmission conjugate of A is A star, because it's a complex number. And the same for these guys. And then if we take the overlap of this wave function with itself, we take the inner product. And in terms of um, these bras and kets, we're going to take the overlap between this with this. Uh, so here's this guy written on the left. Here's this guy written on the right. And now we have to take all possible overlaps. But because we've chosen an eigenbasis, life is simple. So this <laughs> plus can only have an overlap with this plus. It has zero overlap with the minus because they're orthonormal. So plus <laughs> gives a combination A star A, which is A modulus squared. And similarly with the minus, it has no overlap with the plus. It only has an overlap with the minus. So we, B star times B is mod B squared. And if we properly normalized our vector, then A squared and B squared have to add up to be 1. So if you're reviewing linear algebra and it was you didn't like it in linear algebra course, just figure out how to do it for um, a two-dimensional system with two eigenvectors. That's you, get, you guys did a matrix representation for two-state systems last quarter, right? So this is, this is all painfully familiar. So here's our experiment again. So we measured, uh, we split the beam into plus and minus, and then we measured the plus beam again. We always get plus. So the probability of measuring plus or minus in this case is the modulus squared of this overlap. So the probability of getting plus is the overlap between the plus eigenstate with the particular state that we prepared, and the probability of getting minus is the overlap given by the overlap of the minus bra with the state we've prepared and modulus squared to get a probability. <coughs> so in this case, if we're interested in this state, we call that psi, that's the state that we're interested in at this moment. We know that it's already prepared in the plus state. So this overlap is 1, this overlap is 0. So that tells us we'll always, every, every silver atom will come out here. Come, every silver atom that comes in here comes out on this side because there's zero probability to come out with minus. Um, so here's our same experiment again. And uh, our fifth principle was after a measurement yielding a particular eigenvalue, in this case plus, the new state is a normalized projection. So here's an arbitrary state um, coming in. It has coefficient a on the plus and b on the minus. After we use our projection operator on the plus, we just get a times plus. Projector of plus sets this piece to 0. So if we use the fancy formula, e plus acting on psi. <coughs> On top, it gives us a times plus, and on the bottom, we're normalizing. So we have psi p plus psi inside the square root. So p plus acting on psi gives us a times plus, and we need to overlap with psi. But plus has no overlap with minus, so we only get a times a star, since this is conjugated, it's a bra. So we'll get square root of mod a squared. So this is sloppy. a over square root of mod a squared, or a over mod a could be a phase. So we should have left that phase in there if we're being careful. So let's do a different experiment. We'll measure the spin in the z direction, and then in the x direction, and then in the z direction again. 
spin, split the beam into two pieces up and down in the z direction, then we have a different magnet. Now the gradient is pointing, pointing in the x direction, in an orthogonal direction. And then that will again split that beam into two pieces, and then we'll send those through two more magnets, which have the gradient back in the z direction. So what's going to happen? What fraction? How big is this? Are each of these numbers going to be compared to this number? Any guesses? Didn't we just see this? <coughs> Okay, it's a memory test then. <laughs> Quarter? Any other answers? So it looks like quarter. So these uh, eigenstates plus and minus. Now, when we measure the spin along the x direction, this is spin up and it splits it into spin up and spin down again, but now it's spin up and down in the x direction. So that's not the same as spin up and down in the z direction. So this thing that comes out of here is a new state. But because uh, this is only a two-state system, this state can be written in terms of our original eigenbasis. So this state that's an eigenstate of spin in the x direction must be a linear combination of plus and minus in the z direction. So now things get complicated, but uh, we'll keep calling the z direction plus and minus, and we'll call the eigenstates in the x direction, we'll put a little subscript, subscript x on them. Why? Yeah? Why does Something measuring in the x direction basically reset happens in the z direction. <coughs> um, we're going to work that out. So here is why. So what we see from the experiment is that the probability. Uh, so we split this into two beams, and then again each of those into two beams. So this beam is split equally here and here. So when we measure the z component here, uh, this is telling us the magnitude of these two coefficients. So since the probability, this is 50-50, the modulus squared of each of these guys is a half. So that means they're each 1 over root 2 up to a phase. And the same for down here for the second magnetic field. So if we look at the <coughs> measuring spin, spin up in the z direction with the spin up in the x direction or spin down in the x direction, those probabilities are half. And the same thing happens if we measure spin down in the z direction or the spin up or down in the x direction. Each of those probabilities <coughs> are half. So if we write our two x eigenstates spin up or down in the x direction as linear combinations of spin up and down in the z direction, we have these four coefficients to figure out. And from this, we know that these coefficients have uh, magnitude 1 over root 2. And we also want these guys to be normalized. So if I calculate um, the overlap of Oops, this is the overlap of spin up in the z direction with x. This overlap, which is what I'm calculating up here, by written at, in terms of this eigenbasis, this overlap is only going to get a contribution with, from plus in the z direction, plus in the z direction. There's no overlap with minus in the z direction, plus in the z direction. So this just picks out a squared. We can go through all these, and it picks out one one of these coefficients. So each of these coefficients has a modulus 1 over root 2. So 
We can also get some information by recombining the beams. So if we re recombine the beams, we send both beams back through this, which experimentally would be hard, but in the software is just a matter of dragging some lines. Now this comes out all spin up again. Um, we're gonna we're gonna see mathematically at least. So what what's happening is that this state we said was a plus b, a times plus, b times minus, and the spin down state in the x direction was c times plus plus d times minus. Now when we're combining them, we're adding these guys back together. So what the experiment is telling us is that b plus d is zero. Because this state here has no component in the minus direction for z. So b equals minus d and a plus c equals 1, at least the modulus does. Because a plus c gives us 100% probability when, when it's squared coming out spin plus. So can we see at least mathematically why that has to be true? So here are our eigenstates for the x direction. We take the overlap of spin up in the x direction and spin down in the x direction. It's given by this overlap. And again, plus has to go with plus, so we get a star c and b star d. And these eigenvectors have to be orthonormal, so this has to be 0. And we already figured out that they all have equal moduluses, 1 over root 2. Now, if we chose A and C to be real, if we multiplied by a phase, then we can uh, see that B has to be minus D. So that means B is minus 1 over root 2. And then A and C have to be equal. In this particular case, where we're combining beams, we have to be careful because these phases were determined by the phase here. And since this is this is uh, this measurement is a projection acting on this, these guys have to have the same phase. So what we're doing is taking a wave function and splitting it into two pieces with projections. So we take one projection here and one projection there. But when we put the projections back together, we have to get back what we had originally because the sum of all projectors has to add up to the identity. So you project out all the components in one eigenvector and all the components on the other eigenvector, and then you add those components back together, you get back the original thing. So because this was spin up in the z direction, when we recombine these, it's still spin up in the z direction. So, uh, what we're supposed to see is that <coughs> the spin up in the x direction is a linear combination of plus and minus in the z direction. But that's not the same as being a mixture. So it's not that half the atoms are spin up in the z direction and half the atoms are spin down in the z direction. Each atom is a linear superposition of spin up and spin down. That's why it's quantum mechanics and not classical mechanics, or it's one of the reasons. So um, so if we take go back to this experiment where we measure the z, z component, the spin, split into two beams, and then measure the x component, once we do this, uh, we're going to get 50-50 up and down. Now, if, if you thought that this plus x eigenstate was a 50-50 mixture, 50% 50 of the atoms were plus and 50% were minus, then what this tells you is that 
And that, if that were true, then when you prepared this spin up in the x direction and then measured the spin in the x direction again, it would get some combination of spin up and spin down. If it was really some of the atoms were plus in the z direction and some were minus, then you'd get an equal mixture after measuring x again. But quantum mechanics and experiment tells us when we measure the x, the x component of the spin and find that it's plus, then every subsequent measurement of x, if we don't disturb it with something else, is also going to be plus. I have a question. So are these atoms sent one at a time? You can send them one at a time, yeah. Okay. And the results are the same. So that's why we have to use amplitudes, not classical probabilities. So just to extend the, the analogy with linear algebra, we can write everything as a two-dimensional linear algebra problem. So another way to represent our plus and minus kets is we can write the plus as a one zero vector and the minus as a zero one. And then we can write an arbitrary ket psi as the component along the plus direction and the component along the minus direction as a vector. So in our example where psi was a plus b, a plus plus b minus, we can write that in, as a column vector ab. So then if we take the overlap of Bra psi, ket psi. Bra psi is the Hermitian conjugate. So it's a row vector with A star, B star. And psi is the column vector AB. So that inner product is mod A squared plus mod B squared. And we can represent our Hermitian operator, Z component of S, as a 2 by 2 matrix, since it's acting on a 2, two component vector. And its eigenvalues are h plus h bar over 2 and minus h bar over 2. And since we're in the eigenbasis, it has to be a diagonal matrix. Because we've, by going to the eigenbasis, we've already diagonalized the matrix. That's the point of being in the eigenbasis. So if we measure, if we take the expectation value of the spin in the z direction in this state psi, we could write that expectation value as this row vector <coughs> matrix dotted into this column vector. And since it's a diagonal matrix, it's just picking out mod a squared times h bar over 2 plus mod b squared times minus h bar over 2. So this is the probability we get minus. This is the probability we get plus. And the expectation value is just weighting that with the eigenvalues. So in a general quantum mechanics problem, you can write any operator as a matrix, although <coughs> most of the time we have an infinite number of eigenvalues, so it's an infinite dimensional matrix. And then matrix notation is not so convenient, so we use wave functions, which you did last quarter. But in, you can always think of wave functions as representing an infinite dimensional vector, and just Remember how an ordinary finite dimensional vector would work. That has to work the same way. Just now there's integrals instead of sums. So in our 2 by 2 case, projection operators are simple. Projection onto the plus state is 1 up here, and 0 is everywhere else. Projection onto the minus state is 1 down in the bottom right-hand corner, and 0 is everywhere else. And you should be able to verify that p plus times p plus is p plus. Because the one acting on here gives one, and anywhere else gives zero. And so we can use that when we do our projection operations. We'll project out the plus component, and same for minus. So finally, the we're supposed to end, what time is it? 10.52? Okay, we have last slide, time evolution. So say that we have a magnetic field along the z direction, then 
uh, there'll be a Hamiltonian proportional so a gradient of the magnetic field in the z direction. It'll give us a Hamiltonian proportional to the spin in the z direction. That again is a two by two matrix, some proportionality constant out front. And the time evolution of the state is given by the Schrodinger equation. So if we have an initial state at time t equals zero, is some cosine and sine so that the sum of the squares adds up to one. And we'll see why it's alpha over two and not alpha in a minute. Uh, then we can easily solve this equation because uh, this is just a two by two matrix with positive and negative eigenvalues. So the solution is obviously this. This guy, upper component, gets an e to the minus i omega t over two. And when we differentiate, the minus i will come down multiplying this i give us a plus, uh, and we'll get omega h bar over 2. So we'll sat this will satisfy this equation with this Hamiltonian. And then if we take the expectation value of this time-dependent wave function, the expectation value of the z component in the s, s, the spin in the z direction, we'll just get the modulus of this squared times that eigenvalue and the modulus of this squared times its eigenvalue, which is minus h bar over 2. And using some trigonometry, that's h bar over 2 times cos alpha. So semi-classically, that looks like a spin that uh, makes some angle alpha with respect to the z direction. So you could think of it as precessing around the z direction, semi-classically. Okay, so next time we're going to jump into the new stuff. We're going to do three-dimensional quantum mechanics. Don't forget to send your questions.